Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. I want to move now to our uh, sermon for this morning, which is the third week uh, of our series on the church. What we've been doing over the past two weeks is is looking at these metaphors that the scriptures use uh, to talk about this thing called the church. What are we to be? What are we to be doing? What is what is the thing that defines us? Um, and so the first week we looked at the metaphor of the body. Uh, last week we looked at the metaphor of a shelter from the storm. So the first one dealing with how are we to be kind of amongst ourselves and, and how are we to understand ourselves in relationship to one another? Uh, last week, a shelter from the storm, really recognizing what are we to be doing? How, how are we to be presenting ourselves um, to the world? And how are we to be making ourselves available to the world so that we can provide a shelter from the storm? Well, today on this Palm Sunday, it provides us with a unique opportunity because on one hand, we can uh, look at the events of Palm Sunday, understand them at a surface level, uh, simply as a remembrance of Jesus's ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, and when we look at it this way, it's really a fun Sunday of celebration. And of course it is, we know that it's this. And we always try to integrate fun into our Palm Sunday celebrations, just as we've done today. However, Palm Sunday has this subtext that is very rich uh, and deep and profound, uh, particularly as we look at these events in their context, we learn that it speaks to us deeply and significantly about the relationship between the church and the state. And this is how I want to end our series on the church. I want to look at one final metaphor that will help give us wisdom as to how we as the people of God are to think of ourselves in relationship uh, to the nation state or empire. So I want to begin uh, with our Palm Sunday reading. We've read from Matthew, but I actually want for the sermon to look at the gospel of Luke and and uh, that telling of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And so I'll be reading Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 44. Uh, It says this, Now, after he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And we had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as as it had been told to them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And uh, and as he rode along, people kept spreading cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power and miracles that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order the disciples to stop. And he answered them, 
I tell you, if these were silent, then even the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you a single stone turned upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, before we look at the how this, I think, leads us into a metaphor for the church and our relationship to the state, I think it's important to catch some of the nuance of the story. The first thing that really stuck out to me in terms of the nuance of the story is that these praises are ringing out on the streets just outside of Jerusalem in honor of Jesus, who is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, these, they, these people, the disciples, were singing praises because Jesus was the one who was to free Israel from oppression. He was the one, because of the miracles that they had seen, that they saw as capable of defeating the undefeatable Rome. But there's something interesting that happens next. When the shouting gets too loud, the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders of the day, tell Jesus to rebuke the crowd in order to quiet them down. And if you're anything like me, this seems like an odd request coming from the religious leaders, those who, who were supposed to be the ones to see the Messiahship of Jesus. And yet, as the disciples are gathering around and offering up praise to Jesus, there they are trying to hush the crowd. Why would they do this? Well, I think it's because the Pharisees were worried that Caesar, and Caesar is a title, it's not a name, it's a title for, for the leader uh, of Rome. They were worried that Caesar would be threatened by the praises offered to Jesus. You see, ancient Rome had a narcissistic leader that was concerned with only two things, himself and people's loyalty to him. So any shouts of Jesus' kingship was going to be seen as a direct threat to his own power and also his ego. That is, any threat to, and what's true and what history has shown is that any threat to the Caesar's power would mean, certainly mean dire consequences. And in addition, raising too much of a ruckus could be seen as a revolutionary act against Rome. And on the other end of the city, it was common for the, for the Roman Caesar, who at the time is Pilate, to enter in with similar fanfare. But instead of a donkey, the Caesar, Pilate, would have rode a war horse, and instead of branches being waved, swords would have been crashed against the metal of, of uh, shields in order to celebrate military might. It's basically the Pharisees were seeing that these shouts, this parade, this ruckus could be seen as a threat against Caesar. And so the Pharisees try to shush the praises being offered to Jesus. But Jesus replies quite brilliantly, do not be silent, 
For if you are, then even the rocks will start shouting praises. There's another interesting detail that I think will lead us to the metaphor that I want to focus on today. And that is, is that as the parade crests the hill uh, overlooking Jerusalem, when they see the beautiful city of Jerusalem spread out before them, the temple is at the center of the city, it's glistening in the sun. And Jesus, instead of responding with joy, as we would expect, as he's offered shouts of praises in his name, Jesus begins to weep. And through the tears, Jesus says something like this. If you only knew on this day of all the days, the things that could lead to peace, but you can't see. And therefore a time will come when your enemies will surround you and crush you and level the city, leaving no stone unturned. You see, Jesus knows what he's doing with this kind of parade, but he also understands that the disciples, the crowd that had gathered to offer him praises, probably wouldn't quite understand the significance of this day or that moment. You see, he rode into the city as a king, but they didn't see that his kingship would be totally different than that of Pilate. It is, which is to say that Jesus knew that his message of peace would not be received by a people consumed by the ways of empire. And it breaks Jesus's heart and leads him to tears. Now remember that this is most likely a, a, a primarily Jewish audience. They knew the ancient prophets well. And, and I like to think, I like to think that there were some in the crowd that day that were actually in tuned to the drama of the moment, that they were recognizing exactly what was taking place. And so I imagine maybe one, maybe a small handful of people in the crowd who remembered the, the words of the prophet Zechariah, who said in his own book, chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. As they recalled those words, it would have been enough to clue them into the fact that Jesus should be received as a king, that here he is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and recalling the words of Zechariah would have clued them in, this man is to be received as a king. But I can also imagine those in the crowd remembering the words of the prophet Zechariah and saying, what is it that came next? <laughs> and then helping each other out as they had it memorized, one begins to repeat these words, verse 10, from the same chapter of Zechariah, the very next verse, where it says, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I believe that at that moment, a handful of people began to see this parade with clarity. They saw it for what it was, a counter-parade to Pilate's parade of nationalistic pride and military victory. It was a parade of peace.
the Palm Sunday parade is a parallel alternative to the parade of Pilate. And in the same way, and this is where I want to lead us and where I want to take us for the rest of our time together this morning. In the same way, the church is to be an alternative city to Rome. Let me unpack that a little bit. The church is to be this alternative city to Rome. You see, early Christians that lived in the inside Roman Empire, cities that were occupied by Rome, on the one hand, found themselves very at home in the city, which is to say they were comfortable with the culture of the city. They knew how things were supposed to go. They were familiar with the ins and outs of navigating Roman government and, and ro navigating life inside of a Roman city. And in fact, there was much to be enjoyed, even appreciated, about living in a Roman city. And so these early Christians that found themselves in the Roman Empire were in fact, on one hand, very much at home. But on the other hand, early Christians that were living in, in these Roman cities were never totally at home. Because the empire was doing things that they were never comfortable with. And, and would never be comfortable to those who had been transformed by faith in Christ. And so to some degree, they were comfortable in Rome, but they also felt like resident aliens, that they didn't have a place to fully call home. And so lacking this place to truly call home, these early Christians longed for what Hebrews uh, chapter 11 calls the city whose architect and builder is God. Uh, in other words, they longed for a city that they could fully call home. But until they could do that, until that city arrived, they were to organize their shared life together in such a way that the new city of God would be anticipated. And so they saw themselves as sort of this alternative city to the city of Rome and other Roman cities. Now, the general term... And I want you to stay with me here. Some of you are going to be nervous about where I'm going. And I understand that, but stay with me. The general term for how any society organizes their lives together is politics. Politics is nothing more than seeking to answer the question, how do we organize our shared life together? You with me? And so empire is a kind of politic, uh, which is to say empire has certain ways of life, certain concepts of city and citizenship, an understanding of commonwealth and what that means. Uh, empire has a mode of operation that demonstrates who is valuable and who is not. It has a, a mode of operation that demonstrates what matters most and what does not. And in the same way, the church is also a politic that is that the church is must be ready to challenge the prevailing assumptions about life inside the empire because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ as king in other words the church is to develop, is to develop new ways of organizing our lives together based on the kingdom of god and the teachings of jesus which focus on care for the most vulnerable care for the poor kindness to one another love of neighbor, even when they don't look like us or talk like us or have the same uh, economic status or capability as us. And, and so the church 
is, is really in this way, the life of the church is always political. Um, and, and this is what I want you to understand as part of the subtext of the Palm Sunday passage. Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because he thought it was the most efficient mode of transportation. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because he thought it would make for a fun church service one day. Nor did he ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because he thought it would be good marketing for his cause. Jesus, and this is what I want you to see, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to directly call into question the empire's mode of being. Or to say it this way, to directly call into question the empire's politic, way of organizing our shared life together. Here's what's interesting. Roman law allowed for any number of religions that were dedicated to teaching an otherworldly salvation. I want to say that again so you get it. Roman law allowed for any number of religions that were dedicated to teaching an otherworldly salvation. And our ancient brothers and sisters in faith certainly could have taken refuge under this law, but they did not. Because our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith knew that if they were to turn Jesus' message into a message that is only about an afterlife, then they would lose their sense of purpose to embody this alternative city of God inside the Roman cities. And so they didn't want to turn Jesus' message into just a simple kind of peace in the afterlife, although it certainly includes that, right? It certainly includes that. But our ancient brothers and sisters knew that if we turned Jesus' message purely into that, they would lose their sense of mission. They would lose their sense of embodying this alternative way of organizing our lives together that is meant to stand in stark contrast to the ways of Rome, to the ways of empire, and to the nation state. And so just as Palm Sunday parade confronted Pilate's parade, so the church is to be an alternative city that confronts the assumptions of empire in favor of the ways of the kingdom of God. And the ways of the kingdom of God are never more clear than in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus and in his teachings of enemy love, forgiveness, hope, mercy, and resurrection. Amen? Amen. Well, I almost ended the sermon there. And I know this is a format where sermons are best when they're shorter. But if you'll allow me, I want to give us some tools for how we're to navigate a politically divided world. Uh, so give me a few more minutes uh, as kind of an addendum or an addition to that kind of core uh, principle message of Jesus. Because as a people of faith, we are caught trying to navigate uh, a politically divided world. Uh, and a number of approaches have been suggested, right? So one approach for how do we, how do we as Christians navigate uh, this divided world is one approach is to say that faith and politics should never intersect, right? They should just stay in their lane. Uh, but to do this would be to do the very thing that our ancient brothers and sisters refused to do. They did not want to turn Jesus and his message into just another religion about a peaceful afterlife. 
And certainly the message of Christianity includes that. I don't want you to mishear me this morning. But it is so much more than that. And so Jesus had real ideas about how we are to organize our lives together, which is to say Jesus had political ideas. Now, notice I'm not saying partisan ideas, but Jesus had a lot of ideas about how we as Christians are to organize our shared life together. And remember, politics is nothing other than trying to answer the core question of how do we organize our shared lives. So one approach is to say they should never intersect. But to do that would be to to do the things that our ancient brothers and sisters in faith refused to do. Another approach is to assume that faith and partisan politics uh, are one and the same. Um, And unfortunately, much of the American church has done exactly this by attaching themselves to partisan politics and assumed that everything that a particular political party does is most in line with the message of Christ. And I want you to hear me that this is true on both sides of the political ideologies, right? There are some on the right who assume that uh, everything that Jesus said is perfectly in line with kind of right politics. There are those on the left that assume that everything that is on the left of politics, as we would understand it today, is exactly what Jesus said. And this is a mistake in both directions. And in fact, let me just say this, and I want to say this as kindly and as gently as possible. But you can be certain that if you assume that either side of the American political spectrum fully captures the message of Christ in his kingdom, then we have a deeply compromised faith. And in fact, the most grievous error the church can make is to assume that partisan politics is equal to faith or to assume that politics has nothing to do with faith. And so the first two options are really a mistake kind of on both ends of the spectrum, either to assume that faith and politics should never intersect or we assume that they're the same thing. So let me offer some better alternatives. A third approach is what might be called political theology. What political theology does is it takes the politics of empire and seeks to evaluate them theologically or seeks to evaluate them according to the ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so you could look at any given policy, practice, or law, and then evaluate it through the eyes of the kingdom of God. And this is a good solution. This is actually a a decent solution. Uh, In in fact, I would say that if, if huge swaths of the church in America would do this and would do this honestly, we would be way better for it. And if, if we could get folks doing political theology, uh, we would be, uh, it would be such important work of discernment. But I think there's even a still better kind of fourth alternative. And a fourth alternative is what I'll call theological politics, right? So not political theology, but theological politics. So instead of trying to look at politics through a theological lens, What theological politics does is it starts with the conviction that Jesus is to is to be that that the church is to be an alternative city shaped by the ways of Jesus and formed around the confession that Jesus is Lord. And then from there, we work out our political lives and convictions. And so the difference is this. We aren't trying to take empire politics and evaluate 
although that's so important and that work of discernment needs to be done. But in theological politics, we're taking our theology and building a way of organizing ourselves out of that. And here's the reality for Christians, is that when we do theological politics, sometimes in a politically divided world, where people are going to want to peg us either on the right or on the left, right? And so we might say something, uh, an idea about something, and people will, and then kind of throw us in a camp. Oh, you're all to the right or you're all to the left. But listen, church, if we're doing theological politics right, then it should be difficult for people to nail us down in a politically divided spectrum. Um, and so this is really the work that I want to call us to, that as we become this alternative city of God, as we anticipate a, a way of organizing our shared lives together, where the builder and the architect and the cornerstone is Christ, then we need to be thinking deeply and doing the important work of discernment about what does it mean for us to really live into theological politics. This is what Jesus was doing in his time, in his setting, in his context. Jesus was doing theological politics. And the shorthand way of talking about this way of organizing ourselves where the, where the builder and the architect is God, in Jesus's time and day was called the kingdom of God. Kingdom was a regular part of the vernacular and use for the people. And so kingdom of God made sense. City of God might make sense for us. We need to find language of how this might adopt into our own lives and into our own setting. And so my encouragement to you on this Palm Sunday is to make sure we take our cues on what is best for our world from Jesus. And make no mistake, theological politics is dangerous. Jesus was sent to a cross because of his theological politics. Jesus was not sent to a cross because he was just going around telling everyone how to get to heaven when they die. Rome allowed for that, had a whole laws that protected that. Jesus was sent to the cross because he was sharing a politic, a way of organizing our shared life together that subverted Rome's message of power and violence. And so I want to end with this, and I know I've given you so much to think about, but I want you to end with this, and then we'll go to our time of communion. Early Christians living in the Roman Empire were so formed by the ways of the kingdom of God that people were drawn to their lives. And author Alan Crider says in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, he says this in reference to those early Christians, the church, the early church. He says this, their reflexes and ways of life suggested that there was another way to perceive reality that made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. I think what a great way, what a great goal to lean into. That in a world full of fear, in a world full of hate speech, and in a world full of division, let's be interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. Amen? That is a challenge to me, and I hope it's a challenge to you. 
but I also hope it's an encouragement to you as, it, as it's been an encouragement to me um, that during this time of so much uncertainty, uh, may we embody a way of life, this alternative city of God. Um, and I also want to make sure and make sure that it's clear that there is so much good to be loved and appreciated and enjoyed about the world in which we live. This is not a message of the world is bad and, and this is good, but rather it's a way of saying, as the people of God, let's not just so easily assume that all the ways of empire are the best, but let's look at the cues of Jesus to build our views of how we ought to uh, share life together. Well, let's pray to that end, and uh, then I'll lead us in a time of communion. Heavenly Father, we have been challenged today, deeply challenged by uh, this message of theological politics. Thank you, God, for the, the, the message of Palm Sunday, uh, the message that is, is fun, gives us opportunity to wave palms and shout Hosanna, and God, we miss being able to gather together and do that. But Lord, th this parade speaks so deeply and profoundly to us. I, I pray, God, that we would have the courage uh, to hear this message. God, that we would have the discernment uh, to begin to think about the ways in which this message intersects with our lives, the implications that it has for us on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so God, help us as the people of God, as Emmaus Road Church, to be this alternative city um, that pronounces Jesus as Lord and seeks to walk in the ways of the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you. Give us discernment and strength today as we seek it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.